welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rocha, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights. And I'm delighted and truly honoured today that our guest is Lord Newberger. Good morning, Lord Newberger. Good morning. Lord Newberger is an absolute legal legend. And for those of you who have not come across Lord Newberger, I'm going to very briefly introduce him. So the Right Honourable Lord Newberger of Abbotsbury was the president of the UK Supreme Court from 2012 to 2017. Prior to that, he was the master of the roles from 2009 to 2012. And he was, in fact, before that, he was a member of the then House of Lords as a law lord from 2007. Having become a judge in 1996, he then became a Lord Justice of Appeal in 2004 until 2007 when he was elevated to the House of Lords. Following his retirement from the Supreme Court, Lord Newberg now has a very busy practice as an arbitrator based at One Essex Court, a chambers that many of us, including myself, know very, very well. And he is also a non-permanent judge of the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal and also a judge of the Singapore International Commercial Court. So a very warm welcome again, Lord Newberger. It's a personal privilege to be doing this podcast with you, and I'm incredibly grateful that you've taken time out to do this with us today. Now, one question that I've that I found fascinating, it always comes from background, and your background is incredibly fascinating to me. You studied chemistry as your degree, and yep. then having done that, you then went into investment banking for three years. And then you then went into the law. So one of the fascinating questions I would just love to know the answer to is if you could just tell us about how you went from studying chemistry to then investment banking and then finding the law. In a sense, I suppose it was a story of failure. I wasn't sure what subject to study for my A-levels and then get at university. And I think influenced partly by my father and partly by my school who thought I needed a bit of discipline. I um, was a scientist. Yes. Towards the end of my time at doing science at university, I did a year's research. I realized that I was not a natural scientist and there were people around me who were more committed and more inspired than I was. And I would be at best a mediocre scientist. So I looked around and was advised by career people that the choice facing me was probably law or banking. And because in those days, banking didn't involve any more exams, I decided to go for banking. And it didn't take me long to realise, to put it simply, that if I was a bad scientist, I was a worse banker. And I, I was a bit dismayed because I really felt, as one does as one growing up, that I was quite old. Looking back on it, I was very young, but I was quite old and I'd got nowhere, whereas I could see friends of mine embarking on successful careers. And I met a, a friend who was at the bar and he told me what he was doing and I thought I had a sort of slightly Damascene moment perhaps I'm making it up in retrospect as one does but I thought this sounds like the work job for me so I started 
doing my bar exams in my last year as a banker and carried on. And then, although I had difficulty finding a set of chambers to take me, I ended up in the career that did suit me. So it was third time lucky in a sense. Well, that is very fascinating. I'm, well, I'm, well, I'm glad I asked that one. And then the next thing I wanted to just ask you was, given your chemistry background, were you at all tempted as you went into practice to go into the intellectual property bar? Because that would have been one obvious area for you to have gone into, because I know that you had a sort of a property and chancery practice, didn't you, at the bar? I'm afraid it, again, doesn't cast wonderful light on my approach because I was very unaware of what the bar involved and what different areas of law there were. And I didn't know any any barristers apart from one or two who were in the commercial chancery field. And I ended up doing pupillages in chancery and commercial because that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I only became aware properly of the IP bar as I developed my practice. And by that time, it was too late. But I think you're absolutely right. If I'd done my homework properly in advance, I would have been seeking to go towards the IP bar. But in fact, I never did an IP case until I became a judge. Yeah. And so to follow on from that, because, you know, when you were a high court judge, you would have been exposed to a number of areas, some of which you may have practiced in when you were in silk and some of which you weren't familiar with. So, you know, in terms of making that jump, you know, when you start judging cases in areas that you're not that familiar with, is your level of reliance on counsel addressing you even more heightened than it would ordinarily be? One of the pleasures and one of the frightening things about being a judge is, as you've described, you move from being a specialist as a QC in an area which you're really quite well in command of, to deciding cases in areas of law that you know little or nothing about. I remember as a chancery judge being presented unexpectedly because my previous case had collapsed with a a case and counsel stood up and said, my lord, this case is about ademption. I never heard of ademption and I wrote down in my notebook, redemption, which had a meaning to mortgage lawyers. And it's only after he started developing his argument that I realised it was to do with wills, not mortgages. And there are plenty of cases, particularly early on in your career as a judge, where you think that the only person in court who knows less about the topic than you do is the usher. And at times you wonder whether he might know or she might know a bit more about it than you do. It does have the advantage that you, you listen very carefully to counsel and to the submissions and that you approach it with perhaps more of an open mind than areas of law that you think you know about. But you have to be quite careful, and you're absolutely right. You are, as a judge, very dependent on, on, on counsel for their submissions and for what they tell you. And my advice to any judge or arbitrator is if you're not sure if you understand what's being said or what the point is, it's much better to look a little ignorant and ask than to look a complete fool and misunderstand and show you misunderstood in your judgment or award. That's very sage advice. And, you know, talking about sage advice, when you were at the bar and you were developing your career at the bar and as you got more senior, I wonder if you could tell us about 
some of the people who mentored you at that time, some of the people who gave you a helping hand, who advised you and gave you inspiration? Yes, I, I mentioned very briefly earlier that I had difficulty finding chambers. Nowadays, the biggest bottleneck for people wanting to come to the bar is getting pupillage. When I was starting in the early to mid-1970s, the biggest problem was getting taken on. It was easy to get a pupillage because pupillages were unfunded. And there were many, many more pupils in in, in chambers than there are now. That was nice because you got a pupillage quite easily, but it made life difficult to get taken on. And I had three pupillages, at the end of which the chamber's concern took on somebody else rather than me. It was only my fourth pupillage which, which proved successful. And I think that was unpleasant at the time, but very good experience. And I ended up in property chambers, which was not what I had intended or wanted. And that also suited me extremely well. So in a way, it's a question of the opposite of beware what you wish for. But in terms of mentors, I think two people to whom I have particular gratitude are my last pupil master, Derek Wood, who is still around and was an extremely assiduous pupil master and very good mentor to follow in terms of his conspicuous ability as a barrister and in court and advising. And the other person I feel particular gratitude for is, is my head of chambers when I was taken on, Ronald Bernstein, now sadly no longer alive, who was unusually generous-minded for a leading barrister, open-minded and very generous about other people's success. The bar tends to produce, and I'm afraid I wasn't an exception, people who are quite ambitious and not exactly resenting other people's successes, but not enjoying them. And and Ronald was somebody who taught me how one should behave, whatever one felt. So th- those are two people. But there were, so far as judges are concerned, as judicial experiences, the two judges who well, there were many judges, but, but the judges in the, in the Chancery Division where I ended up who stood out were Christopher Slade, who recently died, who was a High Court judge when I was starting, and who was immensely careful, painstaking, polite without being priggish. And Lenny Hoffman, very well known, who was a, a brilliant judge, very friendly, but the sort of judge who depressed you because you knew that within a short time he would have worked out the answer to the case and there was nothing you could say to win it or lose it because he'd got there ahead of you. But he was not showy off or unpleasant about it. But there were other judges. The other judge who, not in not in the division in which I practiced, but who I remember being very impressed by was Tom Bingham, Lord Bingham, who had this ability that perhaps one associates with the best school teachers, which was that you didn't make bad points or waste time, not because you'd get unpleasant or cross, but because you didn't want to disappoint him. And that was very impressive. But there were many other judges, to be fair. I have to say there were a number of other judges who, particularly in the county courts where I practiced quite a lot, who had uh, the opposite effect of showing me what I shouldn't do as a judge. But to be fair to the county court judges now, I should make two points. One is that the standard has gone up enormously. And secondly, even in my time, there were a number of very impressive, able circuit judges. Fascinating again. I can't resist, you know, since you've mentioned Lord Hoffman, I remember an arbitration that uh, I was doing. This was back in 2010. It was a three-member tribunal. Lord Hoffman was chairing the tribunal. 
And we all knew he had a, an incredible intellect. And the point you mentioned just then about how he was so quick and got to the answer, he, he quite clearly had understood the case before we'd even begun it. And it was clear from the first questions in the first half hour of the five-day hearing that he'd found the answer already. And trying not to be too disheartened about the remaining time was, was a memory I shall uh, not forget in a hurry. Yes, he was somebody who did the work, was very quick, made up his mind quickly. But to be fair to him, he was not immune from having his mind changed. He, he did listen and was prepared to change his mind because I had the great privilege of sitting with two of my heroes as law lords, Tom Bingham and, and, and Lenny Hoffman. And I, I know of cases where he'd made up his mind, but then changed it as a result of the argument. So you weren't wasting your time. <laughs> well, I shall take huge courage from that. I mean, on any estimation, Lord Newberger, you've had a stellar a career. You're, you're welcome to call me David, incidentally, please. I should have said that at the beginning. Well, that's very kind of you. I'll try to address you in that way if I can. It's less of a mouthful. <laughs> well, my surname is is even more tricky than yours. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, you've—I mean, you know, you've had a stellar career, both as a practicing lawyer and as a judge, and you've reached heights that many people will never achieve on the bench. One of the fascinating things, again, that I really wanted to ask you was: now that you've moved into another phase of your career as an arbitrator and a legal expert based at One Essex Court, a chambers that I know very well. And I must actually, if I may, just tell you, when I first started out in 1991, one of my first memories, literally on my second week at my law firm, was being walked across by the now senior clerk at One Essex Court, Darren Burrows, to a con taking place with Graham Aronson QC, who was then at One Essex Court, based in the annex in Essex Street. And it's amazing how those memories never leave you. That was, what, 31 years ago. (laughs) Must have been a tax case. Yes, it was a tax case because my first seat as a trainee solicitor was was in tax. And it was a case, in fact, that went all the way to the House of Lords. It was Barclays Mercantile and Mellowish. Oh, yes, yes. It was all about fixtures and fittings and the tax. That's right. To me, to me as, a, as a property lawyer, that was of, <laughs> of some interest, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. So I recall that case because it started off humbly before tax commissioners, then went to the High Court, then the Court of Appeal, then to the House of Lords. But it's no coincidence that I'm not a tax lawyer. But, you know, so just going back to what I was saying, now that you have a new career as an arbitrator and legal expert. I mean, focusing on you as an arbitrator, and you're incredibly in demand. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about how being an arbitrator differs from being a judge. Now, that might sound like an obvious question. But what does being an arbitrator ask of you that being a judge didn't ask of you? And are there any challenges which you faced from not being a judge and now being an arbitrator? When I was master of the roles, John Beachy, who was then running the ICC in arbitration in Paris, said to me, you'll become an arbitrator when you retire. That was the first time I'd thought that I might. I'd not thought about it. And he said, I just got one word of advice for you. Don't be too judgy. And I I think that was very characteristically very good advice. I think you have to remember that you are no longer an authoritative public figure with a public duty, which is even greater than the duty to the parties. 
which is your position as a, as a judge. As an arbitrator, you are part of an overall contractual organisation. It requires of you many of the features of a, of a judge to be impartial, to make decisions, to decide the case according to the law and so on. It, it is different conceptually and in principle. And I, I think you have to bear that in mind. Uh, it has all sorts of subtle differences. I think to some of the advocates, particularly those who appeared in front of me when I was a judge, it's slightly difficult to adjust. And I noticed some of them calling me, for instance, my lord, and so on. I don't mind what I'm called, provided nobody calls me Dave, which I don't like. So it, it's no problem, but I, I, I just notice it. And it does bring home to one the fact that one has changed status. I think that's also reflected in the fact that even if one's a presiding arbitrator, one is one of three. And while, of course, I was used to being one of three or one of five on appeals, being one of three in deciding first instance aspects like procedural matters and even who you believe is a new experience for a, for a common law judge. It's irritating in the sense that it's bureaucratic. You have to get in touch with them. You have to listen to them and so on. But much more importantly, it's very rewarding because A, you get to talk to people B, they will have views that you haven't thought of and perceptions you haven't thought of, which make it more interesting and I suspect makes your decision more likely to be correct. I think that one of the problems there with arbitration is that arbitrators are less self-confident than judges. Judges simply do what they think is right. And if they think a whole lot of evidence that the parties want to put in front of them is irrelevant, they will make it pretty clear and will sometimes exclude it. They have powers to do that, and they have duties to the public to ensure that unnecessary court time is not taken up. It's much more difficult for arbitrators to exclude evidence. First of all, it's questionable the extent to which they can, and bearing in mind that awards often have to be enforced abroad in various different jurisdictions that you don't know about, you as an arbitrator have to be rather careful about doing anything which might be characterized as unfair or unjudicial in the views of a foreign judge, because if the foreign judge thinks you've acted outside what's appropriate, he or she will be persuaded that the decision is unsafe and not enforceable. I think they have to say there's also the factor that the arbitrators generally want new appointments and therefore don't want to upset the parties, whereas a judge has no such concern. And well, I think, to be fair, most arbitrators don't consciously let that factor take them in a direction they shouldn't go. I think subconsciously it's a significant factor. Sorry, it's a rather long answer. No, so it was a wonderful answer because clearly there are differences and you know, you've know you pinpointed them. Just to follow on from that, apart from your work as an arbitrator, you're, you're also a judge, as I mentioned in the opening, in the Hong Kong Final Court of Appeal and in Singapore. Now, Singapore is a place I know well. I practiced there for three years. I was the founding managing partner of our Singapore office. It's a oh, really? Wonderful... I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful place. And I still have hugely fond memories of my time in Singapore. Singapore is an incredibly, as you know, extremely ambitious jurisdiction. And SIAC is the second most prolific system, but also the Singapore International Court is still developing. It's in early, It's in its early stages. But from your perspective, one of the things I also wanted to ask you was, how does still keeping your foot on the judicial side of things, 
How does that feel? Because I suppose it depends how many cases you still get involved in in Hong Kong and Singapore. But I wonder if you could share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. According to our slightly cockeyed present system that's about to change in this country, a judge of my time had to retire at 70, but he or she was entitled to continue to sit if invited as an additional judge until reaching 75. I rather decided that as I was retiring from being a judge in this country, I was not keen to sit as an additional judge. I thought judging in the UK was something I'd done for 21 years. It had come to an end. If I was needed, obviously, I would help out. But I was not at all keen to to sit. I thought that was the past and I wanted to get on doing different things. Sitting outside the UK as a judge was slightly different. And I felt and feel a particular commitment to Hong Kong where uh, the judiciary are very impressive and particularly now under some pressure. And the judiciary and indeed the legal system and the people of Hong Kong deserve all the support that I can properly give and, in my view, all the other non-permanent judges, as we're called, can give. Singapore, I started sitting after I retired as a judge, and I agree with you. Uh, Like Hong Kong, it's a very buzzy, exciting place. There are marked differences, and I haven't been to either of them since the pandemic started, but I have sat there at a distance. And certainly Singapore is a very ambitious jurisdiction and it's one which is almost frighteningly well run and is very impressive. And geographically, it's in a location where they can offer an honest judicial and financial system to individuals and companies who are carrying on business in neighbouring but perhaps rather less well-developed financial and legal systems to support them. And I think Singapore is has ambitions which it is strategically developing, and they are beneficial to the area in which they are aimed at. Thank you very much. I want to turn to a couple of other topics now, just before we close. Uh, the first one is this. Arbitration is now such a well-entrenched system of dispute resolution, incredibly widely used in international business. And whilst it's a great system, it's not perfect. Now, nothing can ever be perfect. But from your perspective, are there any ways that you feel the system of arbitration could be improved to make it a much better vehicle for dispute resolution? I'm generally not in favour of big fundamental changes. There are times when they're appropriate and necessary, but I think people, particularly politicians, are keener on them than they should be. On the whole, systems like the arbitration system, which work generally well and are trusted, should be subjected to small but sensible changes rather than to big shake-ups. I suspect that there are a number of changes. In fact, I'm sure there are a number of changes that could be made. But I think that the fundamental structure is fine. But there are some underlying problems, which is quite difficult to know the answers to. I think that if one had a more robust approach from judiciary across the world to arbitration awards and a less, as it were, nationalistic approach to try and pick holes in an arbitration award, which is contrary to the interest of a national company or a national individual, 
that would make arbitrators far more confident and far more decisive and far more ready to exclude evidence, to reach quick decisions and to proceed more quickly and more cheaply. But as I've said earlier, one of the problems is that the worry about an arbitration award not being enforced in another jurisdiction because the arbitrators are seen to have been too interventionist holds arbitrators back. I think the other thing that holds arbitrators back, which is of similar nature but different in principle, is the worry that if they make a robust decision, the court of the country of the seat of the arbitration will interfere with it. And in some jurisdictions, I think that's a problem. So in a sense, it's not a problem with arbitration as such. It's a problem which arbitration suffers from as a result of attitudes of judges or perceived attitudes of judges in some courts. But I I do think that one of the problems with arbitration is that it is more expensive and takes longer than it should. When I started as a barrister, as a pupil in, in commercial chambers, arbitration was held up as a quick informal system, which got the answer much more cheaply. Now, I suspect it's no quicker than litigation and probably is more expensive. And while I wouldn't, with only four years' experience as an arbitrator, start pontificating about what should be done about that too confidently, I do think that the cost and time taken up by individual arbitrations is something which should be examined. The trouble with any system, particularly when it's successful, is that it almost starts to exist for its own benefit and people start looking at and writing about arbitration and the principles of arbitration and rather lose touch with the fundamental practical nature of arbitration, which is to solve people's problems. And if you want to solve people's problems, your duty is to solve them quickly and cheaply as well as rightly. And I think we slightly lost sight of the quickly and cheaply. Just want to turn to something now, which is a very important theme on my side of the fence, so to speak, as a solicitor, but also at the bar and, of course, on the bench and, frankly, in arbitration. And that is diversity, equality and inclusion. When you were a judge, you chaired a bar council commission on widening access to the barrister's profession. It's clearly something you know a lot about. One of your successors as the president of the Supreme Court was the wonderful Baroness Hale. But we've clearly got a long way still to go in terms of ensuring bigger and better diversity, equality and inclusion in the law. But I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on that topic, because it's clearly something that's developing. But uh, I wonder if you could share your thoughts on that. The first point to make is that there are two, so far as the judiciary is concerned, I have to defend the degree or the lack of diversity in the senior judiciary by referring to the fact that the senior judges are recruited from the QCs and occasionally the top solicitors. And if you look at the diversity there, it's very bad. And in fact, the diversity in the High Court, particularly when it comes to women, is much better than the diversity in the pool in which they're fishing. That isn't to defend the present system in the sense that I'm saying it's good, but it's an explanation to some extent. Our general point I'd make is that I do think that the legal profession many chambers of the bar, many firms of solicitors could do better on diversity. I think most of them think that they're doing what they can, but there is a big gap, and this is human nature, between thinking what you're doing and actually doing it. And I've seen on selection panels, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it myself, people saying one thing and doing another. 
But it is fair to say that it isn't a problem in the legal profession purely. It's a problem of society. And to expect the legal profession to change without society changing is a big ask. But the legal profession does have a duty to lead on this. We are concerned with justice. We are a privileged group of people, properly so, because the rule of law is so important. But because we stand up for the rule of law, which is concerned with justice and fairness, we should be leading on diversity. Because that is justice and fairness. It's also in our interest, because if you restrict the pool in which you fish, by definition, you will not get the best quality. You are losing people. So self-interest as well as justice are demanded. This is all very splendid in terms of words. The difficulty is actually putting it into effect. And I think the answer is very boring in a way, that it has to be individual actions. When I was a judge, I didn't do enough of it. But if I had a person from an ethnic minority or a woman in front of me who I thought should be applying for silk or applying to be a judge, I would, not as often as I should have done, try and see them and and encourage them to go in that direction. And I think that one-to-one encouragement, mentoring as well, is very important, much better than people standing on platforms and pontificating. And I think, although it's a very difficult thing to achieve, encouraging people to think about unconscious bias is also valuable because I think we've got to a stage where not everybody, but most people do think they're trying to achieve diversity and improve diversity, but are held back unknowingly by their personal unconscious prejudices. I'm sure it's true as me as anybody, but by definition, because they're unconscious, they're very difficult to identify. But I think training must help and we should be looking at that as well. Thank you very much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel a huge uh, sense of disappointment to have to bring it to a close, but we do have to bring it to a close. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you, as I do on these podcasts, I like to ask our guests some more informal questions. Fair enough. Not about law, not about anything about the world of politics, that sort of stuff. So, you know, when you can put your papers down and play some music. What's your favourite sort of music? And are there any particular groups or composers you particularly like? I am very, I'm a sad guy. When my friends in the 1960s were listening to early pop music, early Beatles and so on, I found myself quite enjoying Gilbert and Sullivan, which is lowbrow and not highly thought of by people who know about music. I've since graduated to and stuck with classical opera of what, for my generation anyway, is not very original. But I love listening to Mozart opera, Verdi opera, and also Puccini and Donizetti. And I do also enjoy Beethoven, Mozart, Bach. And that is really my music of choice. I'm not deeply musical, but nonetheless, a lot of the music I listen to does bring emotional feelings. And it's quite interesting because I see myself as more knowledgeable about and more affected by painting uh, and sculpture. But it's interesting to me that music can cause a welling up of emotion, sometimes even almost tearfulness, which however much I admire and love a painting, it, it will never do. 
You know, I actually feel the same way about music, you know, for my sins, and I'm not going to spend much time on this. I'm still a big music lover. I still do some DJing. Oh, really? That's very good. Yeah, and, uh, so, <laughs> and so I totally get your point about how music is very emotive. It, it brings out lots of emotions. It's wonderful for the mind and spirit. And so, but, that, but that's a separate topic entirely. You know, in the world of film, I, I mean, are there any films that are sort of perennial favourites of yours? <laughs> again, I give away my age, and again, I fair, I give away probably my frivolity. I do go back occasionally to watch Casablanca, Kind Hearts and Coronets, The Lavender Hill Mob, films made in the 40s and 50s. I like modern films. I keep on watching the James Bond films because I watched the first and then the following ones when they came out, although I think the last eight or ten actually have not been very good. I tend to watch much more, I'm afraid, on Netflix and BBC series than I do films. I'm a fan of Nordic Noir. I enjoyed very much, except for the last few episodes, Game of Thrones. Various things my children put me on to, and now my wife is very keen, at, good at finding finding things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, I'm in a similar position. My children sort of tend to tip me off as to things to watch. They say, Dad, stop being so boring. Just watch these things. When our children said we used to watch Game of Thrones, we, we heard about it and thought it was not our, our taste at all. And we, we watched the first episode and thought, no. And then our daughter gave us the first box set for a Christmas present and we felt they had to watch it. And after the third episode, we were completely hooked. Wonderful. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's a very similar story in my household, I've got to tell you. Now, the last question is, and I know I'm speaking to you on the morning after you've come back from a trip to Morocco and you've been incredibly generous with your time. But just one last thing. If there was another place on your bucket list to visit with Lady Newberger, where would it be? I think it depends whether it's a place we've been to or a place that we would like to go to but haven't been to. I, Whenever we're going to take a, a long weekend off or something like that, my thoughts always turn to Venice, Paris or Rome and often end up with Venice, because I think if I could only go to one city for a holiday for the rest of my life, it would be to Venice. Not an original choice, I'm afraid, but nonetheless, that's my choice. You get better art in Florence, but Venice has a certain magic which no other city in the world, which I know of, has. In terms of places to go to which I haven't visited, I'd be very interested in going to Laos. And I, I'm sure if I thought about it, I would be, I'd be quite interested in visiting Brazil as well. But there are a lot of other countries to visit, a lot of countries that I've been lucky enough to visit and enjoyed visiting. And uh, let's hope with the pandemic hopefully out of the way, travelling is still going to be on the cards. I suppose the biggest no-no for me may be old age, but that's another story. Well, no, thank you. This, is, this has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Thank you very, very much, Lord Newberger. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for being so generous with your time and your comments. And I look forward very much to hopefully meeting you in person before too long. As you say, fingers crossed, the pandemic is hopefully getting in the rearview mirror bit by bit. And we'll all be back to some levels of more normality before too long. So thank you again very, very much. Not at all. Thank you. You don't have to thank me because we've been discussing a topic which is a favourite for almost any judge or ex-judge. 
which is himself. So um, <laughs> I don't apologize. <laughs> that's well, that's a great way to end the podcast. All the very best, Lord Neuberger. Thank you very much again. Thank you very much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.